Good morning. There we are. Good morning and welcome. Thank you for the kind gift. I look forward to opening that and uh, seeing what it is, but I do appreciate your love for me very much. We're going to turn to page three in our worship guide. We're going to have the reading of scripture. Today's reading, we're taking a break from our uh, sermon series on the gospel of Mark, and we're going to take a break and address a couple things from Psalm 63, from the 63rd Psalm. And I want to invite you to listen now with open ears as I read from this, the book that we love. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we come to this time, uh, we said under these words, and Lord, I recognize that as we have come here this morning and listened to these songs, as we have confessed our sins, as we have been called to worship, as we have extended and received peace with one another, I recognize that there is no doubt that we do come from all sorts of different places. Some of us come in here and we are in a season of blessing and comfort, of provision, of health. Others of us are in a far different season. Some of us come in here and we are weighed down by worry and anxiety. Some of us by burdens of the body and finances. Some of us come in here and our families are an absolute complete wreck. Lord, I pray that whatever place we find ourselves in, whether we come here in a season of joy or discouragement, whether we come in here even believing in you and having much faith or or barely having any faith at all, I pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, we all come ultimately the same. We've all come in this room, we've sat under these words with an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, and to be changed by you. And I pray that you would open our eyes and show us how you have addressed this need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. I want to welcome all of you who are visiting, especially here uh, at our worship service today. Really honored to have you. Uh, I do want to give you a little bit of a warning, which is that today I did say we're taking a break from our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And part of the reason we're doing that is that we're going to address some family matters. So if you're uh, visiting today, I hope you enjoy that. And I hope that in some way, wherever you are, that this is helpful for you as well. Uh, I often uh, say, and my, to the point that I have now become made fun of for this, <laughs> but I often say that my mission as a pastor and the reason that I do this, the reason that I'm not um, flying a helicopter for the military, right, the reason I'm here today, 
is because I believe that God has called me to preach, to pray, to serve, and to walk with you with the goal that you would have a deeper joy in God than you presently do, right? And then furthermore, that out of that joy that we would see this spread to those that matter the most in our lives and then to our city especially. That's, the, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm hoping to do. And recently, we conducted a church health study that revealed some profoundly encouraging things about the work of God in our midst, right? And I do want to tell you that, you know, when I look over these uh, results of this survey and I look at what has come back from this third party, considering where things are at here, there's reason to be profoundly encouraged. Uh, my son even pointed out that, you know, we, we scored higher than... Um, the average church of the churches they survey, and he pointed out something so helpful, which is that, you know, the average church doesn't take surveys, right? You have to sort of be at a certain interest in fruitfulness to even like pay the 300 bucks for the survey and go through that hard truth confronting process. So that's even more encouraging. Uh, the one, the matter that I'm going to talk about with you today, however, is a matter that I am particularly concerned about and is something that is so close, as you'll see in a second, to my mission that it concerns me very deeply. And that is this, right? One of the, one of the questions that came back on our survey, there was about actually three of them, but one of them said something like this, I don't see the power of God in my life. Right? A lot of you shared that honestly and openly. I want to thank you for doing that. Right? Another question that came back was something like this. It said, I rarely prepare for public worship, right? I rarely prepare for public worship. And then there was a third question that you might notice the connection to. I experience the power of God in public worship. And I'm paraphrasing these, but these are the ideas. And you can appreciate in reading those questions that no matter how encouraging all of the other things were, right? And they were encouraging. No matter how encouraging all the other things were, that when I read these answers, that to a certain extent, it broke my heart, right? Because I, I long for something far better for you, and I long for something far better for us. The other thing it did, though, is it helped me identify how those answers would be true in my own life, right? So I don't stand here uh, speaking to you this morning, my dear family, as uh, someone who has this figured out, but I speak to you as someone who is on the exact same journey, and my desire for our time this morning and my desire for you this year is put this way. I desire that you would have an encounter with the living God that would lead you to a deeper worship. That is my simple goal. I desire that you would have an encounter, not, not something that I can provide for you, I can't, but I desire that you would have an, a real, honest actual encounter with the holy God who controls, as we sang, the lightning bolts, who dispatches lightning bolts, who decides when the deer will be born. I desire that you would see him in a new and a fresh way and that that experience would lead you to see him in your everyday life and lead you to a deeper worship. What I'm going to do is make a couple of observations as we walk through this passage that I have found to be helpful, and I hope that you will find them as well. One thing I do want to point out that this passage reveals is this, 
that an encounter with God is not something that you can choose to just go have. Right? You don't just decide one day, I'm going to go encounter God, and then I'm going to go you know, pay $9.99, and then I'll make it happen. Right? Encounters happen. And the reason that the psalmist writes as he does, it's no doubt, it says so in the passage, is that he had an encounter with the living God that was still changing and affecting him, even in the season he found himself in. And, you know, if you read throughout history, you'll hear of people saying the exact same thing. So, for example, we as a Protestant church find in our heritage, we are descendants of the work of Martin Luther. And if you know the story of Martin Luther, he was a good Catholic priest slash monk, and he was terrified for his life in a lightning storm, cried out to God for salvation, and said, if you save me, um, I will, uh, that's before he became that monk, he said, I'll dedicate my life to you in this service, and he was saved. And that encounter informed the rest of his life. Uh, One of my favorite books is The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, and if you read in that book, R.C. Sproul, this very life was changed by one evening in a chapel where he felt God's presence for the first time, and he was aware of his holiness. The prophet Isaiah, uh, as well, goes in the temple, thinks it's just going to be another day in service to God, and God shows up in a powerful way. And Isaiah's life and his trajectory would forever be changed. And then I was thinking, of course, of a passage we looked at last season in Mark, Uh, There was a man who was completely demon-possessed, who was out of his mind, who was a complete and total outcast living on in the region of the Gerasenes, and he has an encounter with the power of Jesus Christ, and his life has changed forever. And I say that because worship, the kind of experience that I want for us all, the kind that I want for my children, the kind that I would like to have a deeper uh, reality of, that kind of experience can only happen as a product of having a real encounter with God, right? It can only happen by having a real encounter of God, and it has to be a certain kind of encounter. I, I was reminded of a co-worker I had a number of years ago. Very, He was the fun, probably the funniest guy I've ever known, okay? So we had, there was this, you know, corporate team-building exercise, like the kind that drew plans, Okay, and they said, we want, you to, we want you to do a contest, change one thing about your appearance, and then come back in, and we'll see how many of your coworkers can guess, you know, what's changed. And so people were trying really hard to, you know, move the tie a little bit. Well, he comes in with this sock taped to his nose, you know. <laughs> he was that funny. He was, he was, he still is, actually, friends with him on Facebook. Well, uh, years into his life, his son developed leukemia. And that situation, I just sort of watched uh, from afar as he processed it and was overwhelmingly painful. And it was interesting because he used to post regularly um, of how stupid it was to believe in God. But when the leukemia was at its worst, his posts changed and he said, if you believe in God, would you pray for me? Right? He was so desperate that he began to just ask for prayers. And thankfully, his son was healed. Um, he's he's uh, been leukemia-free, I guess, is what it's called for a number of years now, though the, there is a, an immense amount of, I think, leftover pain from that. But even after his prayers being answered, he has gone back now to regularly posting about how stupid it would be to be a Christian. And I say that because it does take a particular kind of encounter with God right? 
I believe that probably all of you have encountered God's power in your life, but there's only certain kinds of encounters that can actually lead to the worship that is described in this passage. And we're going to learn some things about that as we read through it. The first thing we notice, right, the first thing we notice in verse 63, most important word, excuse me, in um, verse 1, there are not 63 verses. The first thing we notice in verse 1, most important word in the entire sentence is what? My. Oh God, you are my God. All right, what is he saying? He's saying, we have entered into a certain kind of relationship, namely God and worshiper. Right? So God is real, and he is at work in this world, whether you choose to worship him or not, whether you choose to believe in him or not. He's at work in this world. He is God. But some people, after recognizing that, they say, you're my God. I'm in a relationship with you. Right? And when God is your God, what does that mean? Well, it means uh, that you are the one I obey. Right? When I become convinced clearly that you have spoken, I want to obey that. You are the one I hope in. I don't hope in my bank account. I don't hope in my talents. I don't hope in my health. You are the one who decides what will happen to me this afternoon. You're the one that has plans for this decade. You are the one who has already decided my lifetime. You are the God of my money, my dreams, my kids, my body, my mind, my success. You see, David has entered into a certain kind of relationship with him that the Bible describes using the word covenant. This word is on my mind, as you might suggest, as you might observe if you've been here for a while, I am not in Darren uniform, okay? And that's because I have a wedding right after uh, service today, don't have time to change. And, um, you know, this idea of covenant is on my mind, right? As uh, I was talking to this couple and they were talking about details, and I'm just sort of along for the ride, mostly. And I said, look, I just have one requirement, guys, okay? You have to covenant with each other. Whatever you do outside of that, that's up to you. But you, the only, I have one requirement, that's this, that you have vows of permanence, right? That you have to make and receive a covenant with one another. And the marriage covenant, I think, is the most striking and beautiful uh, covenant that we have in our world, whereby someone looks at another person and they say, no matter what you do, no matter what happens to our lives, I will be with you. I will walk with you through sickness and health, through good times and bad. And what David is expressing here in this first verse, is he says, God, we have entered that kind of relationship, that there is some analogy there to the kind of relationship that we have you know, and what's, secondly, what's interesting, we didn't print the subtitle for this, but if you have a Bible and you look up Psalm 63 in your Bible, you'll learn something about the circumstance that David's writing in. So he is in the wilderness, and he is undergoing, from my perspective, what I think is probably the most humiliating experience recorded in all of Scripture, okay? I think that David is experiencing in the context of Psalm 63, the most humiliating experience of all of Scripture. You might be familiar with it. So, David uh, has a son named Absalom, and Absalom decides to rebel against his father in a big way, right? We all have kids that rebel to some degree, those of us who are parents, and if you 
okay, it hasn't rebelled yet, just wait, it will happen to some degree, right? But Absalom outdoes them all, okay? He outdoes them all. He uh, attempts to take David's kingdom from him by force, right? And some of this is really weird, by the way. I apologize for that. It's, you know, ancient times. Back then, kings had concubines, okay? I don't understand it. I'm not going to try to explain it, but that's what they did. And they, were, they would care for them. Uh, they would provide some sort of support for them. Well, Absalom effectively rapes a number of David's concubines on the roof of the palace so that everyone could see. It was an act of profound defiance, profound humiliation, saying, I have everything over you. David is on the run. Absalom has him under a manhunt of sorts. And then we learn from the story that even once David is successful in taking back reign of the kingdom from Absalom, Absalom is killed in battle. And even after all of that humiliation, when he learns of Absalom's death, his heart is broken still for him because he's his son. Right? So that is the circumstance uh, to the best that we can try and appreciate it of David's personal, emotional health at this time. And friends, I will tell you one of the things I've observed. It is often in these kinds of crises where you actually have an encounter with the living God, right? It is not, it is often the case that the moment when you will go from being someone who knows about God to someone who knows him personally in a relationship like this, more often than not, though not always, it is in times of this level of crisis, right? And that was the case for David, right? Look at this just lavish worship that he describes. He says, I long for you. My soul will be satisfied. I remember you. I cling to you. All of these words, and his life is falling apart like it has never fallen apart before. And friends, I'll tell you, just a comment um, I've been thinking about, you know, parenting, right? Don't, don't freak out when your kid has crises, right? We don't want them. We don't like them. They're, you know, we try to avoid them as much as possible. However, it often is the case that it is a crisis whereby someone goes from knowing about God to knowing God. Everyone has to, by the way, I believe every person has to make that transition, particularly kids raised in the church. If you're a kid raised in the church, just so you know, you will have to one day, maybe it's already happened, maybe it will, you'll have to go from knowing about God to knowing him personally. All right, that's the second thing we observe. The third thing we observe is that this kind of worship, the kind of worship that happens when you have this kind of relationship with God that flows from an encounter with him. This kind of worship, you know that it's happening because it doesn't happen only in public, like in a worship service like this, but it happens in solitude. Right? So notice what he says here in verse 6. He says, I'll start in verse 5. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Where? Where is this happening? When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. I heard a really helpful quote that said something like this. 
that true worship, the true you, is what you do in solitude. You want to know who you really are? Right? Just think back. When's the last time I had some solitude? Right? If you're a mom of a young child, just think back to like 10 years. Right? So last time I had some solitude, what did I spend that time doing? That's who I really am. And uh, we, we also, uh, the next thing we see in verse 8 is this. He says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And what we see here is that worship is directly tied to faith. Okay, that worship, I want to put it to you this way. Worship is the product of faith, right? And then worship develops a deeper faith. It's both and, right? So worship is the result of faith and trust. And then secondly, worship develops a deeper sense of faith and trust. You see, what David is doing here, he's, again, he's on the run. He's a fugitive from his own son. He has just been humiliated like no one has been humiliated uh, in, in that time uh, that I've ever read about. He's on this profound run. He's seemingly lost everything. And he says, God, I believe that you will save me. That's verse 9, by the way. I believe that you will rescue me. Because I have seen your work in the past. Verse 2, it's past tense. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. I've experienced your power. And so I believe and trust and know that you will likewise be at work in the present time today. And friends, uh, it seems here that part of why you may struggle, or you may not, let's not use the word struggle, part of why you may not be experiencing God's work in your life, part of why you may not uh, be looking forward to worship, part of why you may not be experiencing God's power in worship, could very likely be an issue of faith, right? And that's, that's where my main concern is. I long to see you knowing him, trusting him, and experiencing him, right? So it might be an issue of faith. The other thing is, is that you might be experiencing a lack of faith in part because you have not been experiencing him in worship, right? Both of those are true at the same time. The more that you see him, right? This is verse 2 and verse 3, right? That David's encounter with him leads in verse 4 to him saying, I will, I'll praise you as long as I live because I have experienced you in the past. And friends, I'll tell you that uh, one, one observation from this, and this is true what, no matter where you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, uh, no matter you know, how many books of the Bible you've read or studied, no matter any of these things, right? Faith always wants to grow, right? Faith always wants to grow. It's like a baby, right? I told this story before, but when one of our kids was born, she stopped growing, and we were like, yeah, you know, she's petite, right? It's just part of who she is. But then we took her to the doctor, and the doctor started freaking out. And I'll just say, there's a very frightening thing when the doctor freaks out, okay? <laughs> you know, parents, mom and dad, were like, oh, she has a bruise. It's the end of the world, you know? But when the doctor, who sees babies all day long, says, call the hospital, go there now, do not pass go, go there immediately, you know that there's a profound problem, right? They call it failure to thrive. And friends, I want you to consider this. 
If you freak out over a body stopping to grow, as you ought to, right? Do you in any way have the same reaction to a faith that has been stagnant for a long time? Right? If that's true, if that's you, and I've had seasons of that myself, right? No judgment here, but I want you to not be content with that. I don't want you to be content with a faith that remains stagnant for a long time. And that is because God has designed faith to grow. Right? So what are we to do with this? How are we to react to this? What are we to do? Well, I said at the beginning a couple of things. First thing I said is that this is not something you can create or I can create. So for example, uh, as the staff has reviewed this survey, we have been just put, we're developing an entire strategy about ways that we are going to work harder to help you. Right? I want you to tell you that when we read these surveys, we don't, you know, look at it and say, oh, it's, look how you know, problematic everyone else is we look first at ourselves, and that's what we have been doing, and that is what we are focused on, right? That's the first thing. However, there is a degree that is true to which no matter how much work the staff does, no matter how much we seek to grow and change, unless there is a change in you also, I don't think we'll see the needle move on this matter, right? And there is a sense in which, though we cannot create an encounter with God. In Jeremiah 29, 13, and this is repeated by the lips of Jesus himself, there is an invitation to seek him. Let me read to you Jeremiah 29, 13. He says this. He says, you will seek me and find me. That's an encounter language. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And Jesus, of course, reiterates this promise. He says, everyone who seeks, find Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. He is pleading, 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 pleading with everyone present to seek and to find him directly. And so, friends, I want to just give you a couple of uh, kind of closing thoughts, closing questions. And first is this, right? We cannot create this experience for you, but there are ways that you can seek God, right? I want to give you a couple that I would like you to consider. The first is this. Take 45 seconds on Saturday to ask God to show up in your life and in the life of others on Sunday morning. 45 seconds. Just say, I'm going to take a break from my day, and I'm going to ask and invite and plead for God's power. It's the first thing. The second thing might be hard. I, I, I've almost given up asking this, but I'm going to try again. I'm going to go for broke here. Come early. Seriously, try coming early. Try saying, you know what, I'm going to make getting into my seat and having a few moments of being still before God, before I start like reciting words that might be hard, might not really accurately represent where I am, or I'm going to read a passage that might be very contrary to the way that I'm living. Just come a little early if you could, right? I say that for your benefit. I, I've been there where I've been rushing into church trying to make it before communion. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's very hard to be in that place in that sense. But the last thing, and this is where I think the passage is completely unlocked, is this, right? I've been saying that it takes a certain kind of encounter with God to produce this kind of worship. And I cited my friend who had, I think, very clearly experienced answers to prayer, but yet those that encounter did not lead to this kind of relationship. And likewise, I know that many of you, I mean, we've prayed together, God has answered, 
right? And then, you know, you've experienced, as have I, seasons of profound dryness, right? So what is it? What is the key that unlocks this passage for me and for you? What is it? Well, David, I think, gives us a sense of that when he says in verse 3 these words. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now, this word steadfast is referring to a Hebrew concept of God's love that flows from his covenant, right? And David is presented in the Hebrew scriptures as kind of the sinner's sinner, right? You want to know who David, not, not everyone in the Bible is presented this way, but David especially is presented as the sinner's sinner, right? The whole reason he's in this mess, right, it's because he sinned catastrophically, right? That's, uh, dis- that's declared to him after he sins with Bathsheba and he says, look, the sword's not going to depart from your house. You have made your bed, right? David is the sinner's sinner. We pray Psalm 51, his prayer of contrition has become a model prayer. Uh, and then I had a seminary professor, very interestingly, actually explain to us that uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, Right? David's sins are actually particularly emphasized, not just the one that we often think about with Bathsheba, but actually he, he made the argument that for Israel, perhaps even the greater sin was David taking the census of the army, right? That when he takes that census and he decides to trust in his own military power instead of the power of God, that his life falls apart and the nation falls apart profoundly. So David is the sinner's sinner, He's the one who's gotten it wrong. He's the one that's failed more than any of you all have ever done so, I believe. And what does he say? He says, God, you're the kind of God who loves me steadfastly. You love me even while I am the sinner's sinner. Your love is the kind of love that looks at failure and sin and getting it wrong over and over and over and over and over again. And you say, I still love you. I'm for you. I'm going to rescue you again. And friends, I will tell you, it is only when you encounter not simply God's power, but his power that is focused upon you, even in the midst of you profoundly getting it wrong, that's his covenant-keeping love. That's when you see him. That's when you experience him. That's the thing that can lead you to this kind of worship. You can worship a God of raw power, right? When we were on vacation, there was a lightning bolt that struck a tree next to a cabin our friend was in. And she was walking around and blacked out for a number of minutes as the, uh, I think they call it ground current, just spread from that tree. But about 30 seconds before that lightning bolt hit, she had been on her phone with the charger in the wall holding it up to her head, every outlet was singed in that place. Right, it is believed that had the lightning bolt hit 30 seconds earlier that she would be no more. Right, God has a raw power that we do worship, but that worship will fade and go away. But when you see God looking you right in the eyes, saying, I know everything you've ever done. I know every way you've ever failed. I know all the shame that you feel. And you know what? My love is better than life, and we know that because I will give my son to you at the cost even of his own life to prove to you how steadfastly I am for you, 
how much I love you, how I will never let you go. And friends, I hope and pray that you would experience a season of spiritual renewal as you allow the Lord to speak those words to you, as you allow him to call you out of whatever it is you're in, uh, whatever's going on in your mind, your heart, your experience, your body, your circumstances, your family, and to say, seek me. You will find me because I have already sought you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.